Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from TSPN, that's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today is Friday, May 25th, 2012, which means we're almost done with May. We're almost into June. June is halfway through the year. 2012 is almost gone. The end of the world is coming. Watch out. The 21st of December. No, it's not going to fall apart. But things can and do go wrong, and we need to be prepared for the things that can and will go wrong. We'll all still be here on December 22nd of 2012, of course, but what state of liberty will our lives be in? How far will we have gone forward or backward in creating independence and self-sufficiency in our lives? I give you these little time-based wake-up calls once in a while at the beginning of the show to kind of snap you into reality. And that reality is you're becoming more free and more liberated as an individual in your life or less. There's nothing stagnant in nature. Everything is moving forward and backward. Uh, the gardener that cuts the grass is trying to create the illusion that nature's not growing the grass and evolving the system. But the reality underneath is let the gardener get sick and not show up for two or three weeks, and we'll see what nature's actually doing with the grass as the weeds begin to creep in and replay, re, re, repair the landscape. That might sound like it's not connected, but it is, because this is how life works. Nature shows us how life works. We either are moving forward or backward in different areas in our lives. We never stay stagnant. A business that's not growing is in decline. There's no such thing as a business that's level. There's no such thing as a civilization that's level. There's no such thing as a household that's level, and there's no such thing as an individual that's level in movement. They're either moving up or down a sliding scale. Which direction are you headed? If you're headed in the wrong one, start taking some steps. Maybe we can help you do that today with thinking, action, and being. All right. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating with Chef Keith Snow. One way we can take uh, and move our lives toward greater liberty is to be more in control of what we eat and what we put in our bodies. And we can do that by eating seasonally and eating locally so that we're growing our own food and buying from local producers instead of supermarket-based crap. You're going to hear something today. You're going probably going to bother you. It bothered me from, I think it's the final caller we have in queue today, about some store-bought lettuce and what it did to a tilapia. I'm serious, you know. And if you want to eat good quality food... One of the things we have to do is get away from the packages and boxes and start learning how to actually cook food ourselves. Well, Chef Keith Snow can help you with that. Check him out today at HarvestEating.com. If you want to make your food taste really good, get some of his seasoning. i got to put another order in for steak seasoning. I'm out of that stuff again. Uh, I need to stock up on it big time, honestly, because it is probably the best steak seasoning I've ever eaten. little tip on it, I don't know how Keith will feel about this, but if you throw that in a mortar and pestle and crush it up, or put it through like real quick a couple pulses in your blender to break up some of the larger seeds, sticks to the meat better and you get more flavor in the meat. Just my little addition there. But check him out today, Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. And now he is on RFD TV. For those of you on Dish and uh, what's the other one? Uh, Direct TV, I believe you have RFD TV. You can look that up and you can look up Chef Keith in your uh, schedule. So he's got a proper cooking show on real television now. All right, next up today, Western Botanicals. You know, I'm big on herbs, not just for cooking, but for healing. 
and for prevention. And if I can't sleep, then a cup of peppermint tea, sometimes a little bit of chamomile tea, those two together are very, very calming and centering and maybe addition to an adult beverage after dinner or something like that. I've even been asked about that today. It'll be fun when we get to that one. Anyway, um, you know, there's all different types of things we can do with herbals, whether they're from essential oils or raw herbs or preparations or combinations. And I try to get as much as I can right, on my, right out of my own backyard or wildcraft it from, from the, the forest around me. There's times I want something I don't have. And when, I, when I'm in that position, I go to Western Botanicals. There's times when I have a problem and I don't know what I need. So then I call Western Botanicals and real people answer my questions and actually help me make a good decision. And whatever it is I need, I find that they have it. And they have it either organically grown or wildcrafted, so it's completely free of all toxins and, and other problems. And the big thing, though, is that they're going to actually help me when I don't know what I need. That's that's the important part. Real people with a, you know that speak English answer the phone and go, hey, yeah, what's your problem? Okay, let me, oh, I can help you with that, or I'm not sure. Let me get to Dr. Christensen and let him get, call you back on that. And you get help, and that's really important. And that's why I'm glad that they're a sponsor. They also support the Member Support Brigade. They have a premium membership, it's $50 a year, 25% off everything they sell, and uh, you get your first year of it free, and if you choose to keep it in your second year, you get it for half price if you're an MSB member. So they're also a big-time supporter of the show, and been with us now for three years. Western Botanicals, check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, remember, you can connect with uh, me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the best ways to do that. Had a Facebook problem I'm going to help some of you guys out with, maybe that are running fan pages that I figured out a workaround yesterday. All of a sudden on the survivalpodcast.com, I couldn't do any new posts that included a link. Couldn't get it to work. I could put a picture up. I could respond to you guys. I could put a text post. I could do a video. But I could not post a post and throw a link in there and it embeds the link that way. Could do it on my other fan pages. Could do it on my personal page. Just couldn't do it on TSP. Thought, what have they done? The black helicopters from Facebook have come to get me and stop me and shut me down. Well, no, they would have shut me all the way down. So I knew something was up. Did some searching, found some stuff on the Facebook forum. It happened to a bunch of people yesterday. I don't know if it's still a problem. I'll try today. But if you ever have this problem, i got a solution for you. Put in beta, B-E-T-A, like a beta site, dot Facebook, dot com, forward slash the rest of your URL, and it'll work. I don't know why, but it does. At least it did, and that's how I got yesterday's episode out late on Facebook. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, and if you do that, you support the show at 18.3 cents an episode, yada, 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 done. I want to get into the topic today. Most of you guys know about the MSB. If you don't stick around, you'll hear about it if today is your first show. All right, so today is a listener call-in show. For those that are new to the show, this is how this works. You pick up your phone. You don't do it now. Well, you can, but nobody's going to talk to you if you do it now. You're going to get a voice message like everybody else. You pick up your phone, and you put in the numbers 866-65-THINK. That's 866 T-H-I-N-K, think, because we encourage you to think here. You leave me your question, your comment, your commentary, and you do that in two to three minutes in total duration. You call from a quiet area. You call with a good connection so that I hear, hi, Jack, instead of, hi, Jack, this is, and I was wondering, yeah, see, if you call like that, and I delete your message, even if I think it was a good one, because I can't put it on the air. You don't call standing next to a guy running a weed eater or a chainsaw or while you're riding on the back of a motorcycle. You call from a quiet area with a good connection. You leave your question. If you have a question or a point, you make it first, and then you give the details afterward, and that's just for you, because that helps you have a better experience and lets the call come out more cleanly for you, especially for those of you that get a little bit tongue-tied. Don't worry, you're talking to a machine. 
If you screw up, just hang up, call back, and leave your message again. That's why it's better than live uh, live radio. And then about once a week I go through, usually calls that are about two weeks old. If you've called more than three weeks ago and you haven't heard your call in the air, call back in. Maybe you'll get on this time. And uh, I pick out about 10, 11 calls a week to put on the air. That's probably about 30 to 40% of the call volume on a general week. Some weeks they're higher, some weeks they're lower. So you got pretty good odds of getting on the air. So that's how it works. That's what today's all about. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hi, Jack. It's Rancher One School for the Forum. There are two um, spots on our ballot uh, this election season for elected judges. Um, and I was curious. Um, what kind of questions we should a we should be asking um, these uh, potential judges um, but since they're going to be getting our votes? But uh, anyways, I was wondering if you could cut, touch on that. Can't wait for you to spill the beans about uh, Montana. Uh, talk to you later. That's an interesting question, a little bit more political than I like to be, and I got two political questions today, so I'm going to have to address them because it's fair. They're fair questions. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what. Here's how I feel about judges. I don't care what you believe. I care what you do. That, that's it. I don't care if a judge thinks all firearms should be banned if he has complete and total respect for the laws of the land and the Second Amendment and understands that his personal opinions uh, do not interfere with the law. So the only real question that I have for a judge is, will you strictly adhere to existing law and the Constitution of the federal government and the Constitution of the state that you serve in? The answer to that is yes, and I believe it. Then I believe that person will make a good judge, you know, assuming they have a good command and understand of the law and you know basic intelligence level and some common sense to temper things. And what I mean by common sense is that a judge, when put into a situation where it really could go either way, should always side with the individual liberty. That's 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 my belief. That if the judge is sitting there and genuinely going, I. God, I don't. This is a hard one. This is a tough one. This isn't. This isn't quite so easy. That the judge should basically punt back to the legislature and go. There's no clear delineation here. There's no. There's no clear uh, cut based on the Constitution that underwrites the law or the current law. And there's no law in this particular instance to judge back to the Constitution as being constitutional or non-constitutional. Really, it could go either way. It's up to you guys to try to do it in a constitutional manner if you don't like the way this comes out. But in this instance, I'm, I'm, I'm siding with the individual versus the state because if it's a draw, the individual should win. It should be run like a, like a Vegas game of blackjack. If you are playing the dealer in blackjack in Vegas and you guys tie, you both get an 18, the dealer wins. Well, that's kind of exactly the opposite of what I'm saying, I guess, because the, the dealer is the state, right? So... In a, a court decision, I'm looking for a judge that when it's a tie between the individual and the state, says because the sovereignty starts with the individual and works up to the state versus the other way around, when there's a tie, the individual wins. That, that's what I want out of a judge. Strict interpretation of the law, strict interpretation of the Constitution, siding with the individual sovereignty of man and the individual rights Over, overriding the republic's desires as a majority. The individual is first, so long as there's no violation of another individual's rights. Sadly, we won't hear judicial candidates usually talking about this. They'll either tell you how many people they put away in their prior job as a prosecutor or a judge, as though convicting a lot of people proves that you've done something. 
Convicting a lot of people doesn't prove you've done anything. Convicting a lot of guilty people proves you've done something. Or you'll hear judges say, I'm for the, you know, the Second Amendment, or I am for right to life, or I am for, you know, uh, you know uh, pro-choice, or I am for whatever one of these issues there are. Well, I don't care what you're for. I care what you're, as a judge, I care what you're going to do. And a judge's job, 90% of the time, should be very, very easy because somebody with a fifth grade English comprehension, in most instances, if they'll take their personal bias out, read the law, look at the situation, should be able to make a fair determination based on the law and the constitutionality underneath it. It's not the rocket science that the people at Harvard and Princeton want you to believe it is. It's really not. 10% of the time, it's an agonizing thing. And that's when the person really needs their personal bias out, their common sense in, and will you side with the individual when it's a tie? I, unfortunately, again, I don't know that you're going to be able to ask those questions, and I don't know that you're going to hear a lot of judicial candidates discuss them. But that's what I would be looking for. If I was a president, and you said, Jack, you appoint the next Supreme Court justice, the individual I've just described is the individual that I would want to put on the court. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Mike from Northeast Pennsylvania, PA-Prepper on the forums. I have a question about dehydrated food and how to know when it's still good. Last year, I dehydrated peppers and tomatoes that I bought at the farmer's market. Um, not quite till they're brittle and break, um, but very dehydrated. And I still have some in Ziploc bags in my cupboard. And I wanted to use them, but I'm starting to get a little nervous. I don't know how to tell if they're still safe and good. Uh, there's no mold on them or anything like that. I'm assuming they're good, but any tips on knowing when dehydrated food is passed, when you would want to use it, would be great. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Have a great day. Okay, a year in Ziploc bags for well-dehydrated food, not even not even breaking a sweat and concern. Okay, that's 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 the first answer. Ziploc bags for storing your dehydrated food, not the best choice. Um, a much better choice would be glass jars with O2 absorbers. And then we're looking at, you'll probably be throwing it away because it's taking up space and you, you don't have it well organized before you run out of storage life. Properly stored dehydrated food uh, in the absence of oxygen or, or the, at least the, you know, the absence of most oxygen, uh, you know, airtight container, O2 absorber, things like that. You're looking at 15 to 25 years or more. It's almost a point where the person will look at the food and just go, it's been too long, even if it hasn't, before the food is no longer good. Um, there is, you know, people will say it's eight years, people say it's 10 years, people say it's 25 years based on packaging when we're buying commercial products. And that's because any manufacturer is going to want to, at some point, separate themselves from any liability associated with that food. And that's what an expiration date does. So if, if they say the food's good for 10 years, and at five years you, you mix it with rat poison and eat it and it makes you sick, there's still some chance that some slumbag you know, lawyer will take the case and come back and say, hey, it might have been storage life. I don't know, you guys. So there's always that out there because we have judges that don't fit the mold that I just cast for you. So there's a point where any manufacturer wants to say, I'm, I'm no longer responsible for anything to do with this. 
And most expiration dates on food packaging are well before that food is even close to going off. You know, the exceptions would be things like milk. You get a little bit past the expiration date with milk, and it starts to stink, and you know it's bad, and you wouldn't drink it anyway. Of course, it has a lot to do with how the milk's processed, but we'll, we'll leave that out today. But it, if it's well dehydrated, and you've cleaned it before you dehydrated it, and you've done everything properly, I'd say even with Ziploc bags, you're looking at two to three years, and the quality will go down before there is any danger. Now, what, what can cause the growth of, of, of bugaboos, let's call it, bad things in your food. Moisture, oxygen, and light. Those are your three enemies. If the food becomes moist, even a little bit of moisture back in, it opens up the door to fungus, bacteria, molds, and things like that. So you want to keep it dry, you want to keep it dark, right? And you want to keep it oxygen, uh, oxygen deprived. If you do that, you're looking at I, I would say a, a dirt minimum on all these dehydrated vegetables of 10 years. Ziploc bags, try to use that stuff up this year, but don't sweat it. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, I have a question about my compost pile. Uh, I haven't really been taking care of my compost pile like I should have. Um, I've been adding um, like my scraps and stuff, uh, vegetable scraps and so forth in it. But I'm not, haven't been turning it like I'm supposed to. Um, I know that's a really bad thing. I shouldn't have been doing it. Um, but I started getting some, uh, plants growing in my compost pile. And, uh, I started growing, started getting some tomatoes growing and, uh, some other vegetable plants that I haven't quite figured out exactly what, what it is. Um, I just kind of thought about just, you know, going ahead and letting the plants grow. But they're probably store-bought tomatoes that's growing. Um, I don't know. Will them things actually make tomatoes, or will the plant just grow and uh, not make any tomatoes? I mean, I, I'm just kind of curious, Jack. Um, will them plants that's growing in my compost pile, will they make, you know, vegetables? Just curious. Uh, thanks a lot, Jay, uh, Jack. I, I really appreciate your show. Have a good one. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Well, well, the compost issue, let's talk about the turning of the compost and all that stuff first because it's a separate issue, and it's something people can overthink and worry too much about. If you turn it once in a while, uh, you're going to be okay, but you're not going to really be doing like efficient composting ever with kitchen scraps. There's two ways to do it. One is do just what you're doing and turn it once in a while. And eventually kind of take whatever you have and put it into its own separate pile and start building a new pile. You can do it with the bin system in my video series that's on the, uh, in the MSB if you want to. But I mean, it's, it's, it's not a very efficient method. My bin system was designed to help it be more efficient because it is inefficient. Efficient compost, and we take greens and browns, and we put them together in a cubic meter, cubic yard, for us on the, the, the American system of measurements, or, or more. Right? So at least a cubic yard of material, and we turn it every three or four days, and we can make compost in somewhere between, I would say, about 16 to 30 days. And, they, and we could use, you know, use some manure, use some green materials, some brown materials, and it will cook, and it will cook fast and hot. And it won't even, the, the pile won't even go down very much. And if you get Jeff's, uh, Jeff Lawton's DVD on soils, you'll see exactly how to do that. Uh, and that's for making very high quality, very fast compost. What we're doing when we make a compost pile from our scraps and stuff like that is more of an inefficient 
Uh, it's aerobic and anaerobic at the same time. You'll pull it apart sometimes, and little parts of it will be cooking nicely. Other parts of it will be all rotted and stinky. And as we turn it, it'll, it'll, it'll get some of it going and some of it not. The problem is when you got it, let's say you get it going. You get enough material together. Let's say you have a whole bunch of kitchen scraps at once, and it's nowhere near as big as a cubic yard. You still get it cooking. And you, you, you mow the lawn, and you mow over some, some really nice green grass and clover, and you, you know that's good clipping, so you take that and some leaves and some kitchen scraps. You mix it all together. You get a good good pile, and you stick your hand in there in three or four days, and it's, it's nice and hot. It's so hot that you can only leave it in there for a second before it starts to really burn. So you've really got it going. And now we go out there and we throw a couple halves of uh, pumpkin on it and some tomatoes and cucumbers. It's kind of like you're baking a chocolate cake and you've added more egg and cocoa right in the middle of the of the baking. It, it it's it's not going to cook right now. You know, even parts of it will cook, parts of it won't cook that type of thing. So when we're doing these piles, we have two choices. One, we just let it be what it is and eventually kind of move it to the side and start a new pile and it'll work itself out. Composting is It is a science if you want to do it fast, efficient, and quick, and high, very, very high quality. It's, a, it's, it's very, very simple if you just want to let nature take its course. Sooner or later, everything breaks down to soil. All right, So we can do it that way, or we can move to worm, worm farming. We go worm farming, we have a worm bin, we can keep adding that, that, that stuff every day, and the worms will take over and create castings, and we can pull castings off, and we can keep refilling the worm bin. Or we can put the worm bin right into a garden bed, and we can let the worm juice seep out, and, and we can do things that way. And we can still stake castings out and use them in the bed that they're in and other beds. Those are the two ways to handle this kind of slow addition composting versus uh, high material count composting. Uh, so those are you know just a couple ways to think about things. Other things we can do with that to be e make this easier, mulch all your garden beds. When you have those leftover potato peels and tomato and banana peel and everything, go out, pull up about two or three square feet of your mulch, lay it all out one layer on the ground, put the mulch back on top of it, it'll decay, the worms will eat it, it'll do everything right there, and you don't have to do any composting. And then the next time, make sure you just pull up a different patch of mulch and keep moving it around. That's another way to get rid of those waste materials uh, if you don't want to have a compost bin. All those work great. So there's the compost issue with the turning and taking care of it. In other words, what I'm telling you is what you're doing is not that big a deal anyway. It's fine. It, it, you really haven't messed anything up. You just might want to start a new pile. All right, now let's get to the interesting part about the stuff that's growing in there. Um, the reality is we have no way to know what variety is growing in there of anything. Odds are when you buy a tomato at the store, uh, we have no way to know whether or not that tomato was anything. We don't know what it was even when we get it a lot of times. They'll say, you know, Joe Blow's tomato, but what does that mean? You know, hydroponically grown Canadian tomato. Okay, well, uh, you know, even some of the, the cool ones, you know, like it'll say, you know, orange uh, tomato, what have you. Well, there's no way to know if it's a hybrid or not. We, we, we know that there's very few GMO tomatoes, and they're not really a big thing in the market right now, especially at the consumer level anyway. Uh, I think there's one, and it's being grown mostly for, like, canned products, which is a problem all in of itself. Um, so not really a GMO thing, but a hybrid thing. And just because something's organic doesn't mean it's not a hybrid, because a hybrid in of itself is nothing bad in fact, for the small grower with a backyard garden, hybrids aren't that big a deal. They're just not highly sustainable because I have to go back and buy no, more seed next year, sort of. And that's where this could be an interesting little experiment. But we can also look and say, well, what kind of tomatoes do you usually buy? Romas are an heirloom tomato. And the romas you buy in the store, 
for the most part, from my experience, will produce new Roma tomatoes that will produce Roma tomatoes. So if you buy mostly Romas, and those are Romas grown out of your compost, they may grow into great strong plants and produce great strong fruit. Who knows what they are, though? Who knows if they're all one variety of tomato, even if they're not a hybrid? Will the resulting seed be hybrid seed? But they'll produce something. Just what will it be? See, here's the problem with a hybrid. Let's say I have a hybrid tomato variety, so I don't you know, scuttle anybody's name or anything unjustly. Let's call it Hybrid A. We have Hybrid A, and we grow it in Christmas. Big, beautiful tomatoes, beefsteak style, man. One slice covers an entire Kaiser roll for that big, giant hamburger at your 4th of July barbecue, and you think, man, these are the best tomatoes I ever grew in my life. So you save some seeds, and you plant them next year, and then they, they grow, and this plant comes up, and they produce these little tomatoes or these weird-shaped tomatoes, or maybe some plants produce big tomatoes or some other, and some taste really good and some don't. What you're getting is kind of a de-evolution of the hybrid strain because we took heirloom variety A or heirloom variety B and heirloom variety C we crossed them to get hybrid A is the easiest you know ABC method to think about this we took two heirlooms put them together we got A A is going to have traits from both and experience something we call hybrid vigor in the F1 generation that's the first generation after the cross So when we take seeds in the F2 generation, which is the seed of the resulting hybrid, some will have the exact same characteristics of the parent hybrid. Some will have almost none of them and be terrible resulting. And a bunch will be somewhere in the middle. Okay, So the only way you'll know what you have is to let it grow and see what happens. And if it produces good fruit, you need it. If you save the seed, will it produce good fruit again? We don't know. But it certainly wouldn't hurt anything, and your methodology there is not far off from a actually a pretty good methodology, which is you just pile up all your compostable crap into a pile and leave it, and then maybe put a layer of, of mulch on top of that and plant into it and keep building piles like that. It's been done plenty of times in plenty of places, and it works. And when you plant things like tomatoes and peppers from seed that generally are transplanted, you usually get very strong plants. And they, of all the seeds that were in there, they chose to grow. So you have this crapshoot now. If you happen to have been buying organic produce or the tomatoes you were buying came from a true reproducible seed variety like Aroma, you might get really strong growth and really good production. You might get great big plants and little bitty crappy tomatoes. You just don't know. You just let it go and see if you want to. Now, this is something I, I probably need to do a hybrid vegetable show and go deeper into this. But let's say that you had hybrid variety A of tomato. And you said, I want, I want an heirloom like this. Do you know how you do it? It takes about seven generations. Next year, plant about 48, a good four dozen plants from the seed of that tomato, pulling them from multiple tomatoes, okay? And then grow them up to maturity. And the plants that produce true to seed, you might get 10% of them, four or five, out of all of them, that'll produce tomatoes just like the parent. Okay, Take the tomatoes off those four or five. Take a, take a seed from the best tomatoes off those four or five and do it again next year. And then next year you'll probably get 30, 40% that'll produce true to type. And then do it again. And then do it again. And it usually takes between four and seven generations to prove out a hybrid trait to where it becomes basically a new 
heirloom or a new open-pollinated seed. And this is why we don't need to have the war with hybrids and associate them with GMOs. Because every single heirloom vegetable out there started off as a hybrid that was proved out over multiple generations. This is how these very strong heirloom varieties were created in the past hundreds of years ago. And then what we decided was we don't want to wait that long. So we'll just make a hybrid, get hybrid vigor, and just do it every year and then rely on the seed companies. And again, if you grow a dozen tomato plants a year, what's a packet of seeds cost? It's not a big deal for long-term preparedness. We want those heirloom varieties, but it's not that big a deal. Where the hybrids hurt the most was convincing farmers to go this way. And then the farmer now has an expense for tens of thousands of dollars before he makes a dime. And if the crop failure comes, he's totally screwed, and he's always having to go back to the seed vendor and buy more seed. So this is why people like Seth Holzer are totally opposed to hybrids, because they're looking at it on this large-scale production, where I'll grow whatever the hell I want in my backyard, a very, very heavy reliance on seeds that can be saved and brought into multi-generations. But, you know... It's also that if I want to grow celebrity tomatoes, which are very disease-resistant, that I might grow them, and I won't have any problems with it. So it's a long answer to kind of a simple question, but it opens up a lot of little Pandora's boxes that I wanted to cover for you. So in that one question, we got a lesson on hybrids. We got a lesson on, on creating compost growing beds. We got a le lesson on composting, multiple methods out of composting. So a question that gets that many different things opened up and answered Great question. Thank you. Let's take another one. Talk about the think questions, man. Let's, again, let's take another question. Hi, Jack. It's Ryan from Canada. I'm starting with a clean slate. Uh, I got about an acre and a half. I'm going to be building a house on uh, that acre and a half. And I'm wondering if I could get any suggestions, advice, comments uh, on how I would uh, go about developing that land uh, and what, uh, what you would do uh, with that. I uh, uh, appreciate everything you do. Uh, love your show. I uh, download it all the time. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from your uh, your comments. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Well, this, this could turn into a whole episode, so I'll try to give you some basic ideas, and maybe I'll do, like, permaculture design of a vacant property is an episode next week because I uh, had a guest drop because they thought that, you know, scheduling another appointment on top of ours was uh, okay to do because we weren't as important as whoever the other appointment was. If I sound bitter, uh, understand the guest was booked uh, 45 days ago and, and chose to do this at the last minute, and the guest actually no-showed a prior interview, and that guest is a well-known author that will now never be on the Survival Podcast. It's up to you to figure out who it is, but when that one never shows up, you'll know who it is. Anyway, so maybe we'll go into that then, but here we go. Um... We have a lot of things to look at and consider when you say clean slate. And then we have like optimum, and then we have realistic uh, expectations. So if I'm going to have to bring power in, if I'm going to have to bring gas in, if I have to bring water in, if I have to bring roads in, there's probably an existing roadway. And the further I get away from that roadway with my dwelling, the more cost I'm going to incur. So some of these things you may have to say, I'd like that but. But in a perfect scenario... 
I want my house to face south. If I'm in the southern hemisphere, I want my house to face north. I want lots of windows on that side of the house. I want to bring lots of natural light in during the day, and I want to bring lots of heat in when the sun's low during the winter. So I want that southern orientation. But it goes beyond that. I want to start thinking about what, what rooms do I want on that side of the house, and pretty much I want my hot rooms, rooms that are okay to be kind of warm. I want my kitchen, right? And I want my living room and possibly my dining area on that side. And I can do things like I can locate my kitchen uh, to the east, so it's on the southeast corner, so it's nice and bright in the morning when I get up to, 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 make, uh, to make dinner. Or I might want to locate my dining room over there. Why would you do that? Well, the, the, the big meal that everybody sits down to in a family situation a lot of times is dinner. And if the, the, the dining room is sitting over there in the morning, well, I can have my breakfast there and be well lit and have the warmth of the morning sun and all. But in the evening when the house is heated up from the day, now the dining room's over on the shaded side of the house, even though it's on the south side, and it's going to be cooler for the family dinner. And the, but the kitchen's going to so I get Make these decisions off of things like that. It's up to you, but that's if I'm going all the way from a clean state and I'm designing the house, I'm going to think that way. Now, what are the rooms that I want to be cool? Generally, my bathroom, my laundry room, and my bedrooms. I want those on the north side of the house, on the back side of the house, separated away from the heat zones. Why? Uh, because we take a shower, <clears throat> you know, we're only in there for a little bit, and we have hot water generally. So the, the shower itself heats up the, the bathroom. So I don't need that much heat. I know it's nice to step out of a warm floor and all. We can put radiant heating in if you want to. But generally, I don't need that room to be really, really warm. Okay? Uh, we sleep better when we're cool. Uh, laundry, we generally are working, so we're going to work up a sweat. So a cool laundry room is nice to have. So that's just the orientation of the house. Now, thinking about the whole thing, I want to think from a permaculture standpoint, an acre and a half, I can design all the way out to five zones of design if I want to. Definitely can design out to zone four. But I want to look at the slope of the land. And I'm probably, since I'm not dealing with a farm, right, I'm not up to like a five-acre landscape, my most beneficial design components are going to be in my zone one, zone two. So that's my vegetable garden, my kitchen garden, my chicken pens, stuff like that. And I'm going to want to be able to do as much rain catch off the house for irrigation as possible. So if possible, I'd like to think about the design. I'd like to get the house with the southern orientation, the construction that I've just described to you. And then I want to take and make the house a little bit higher up then the main areas of plantings around there so that I can hold the water from the, from the roof in a tank and use no energy or maybe just enough energy to electronically open up valves on timers to do a lot of my irrigation from tanks thrown off the house. If I'm going to put ponds in, I might want to put in a large pond. Let's say I want to take up a third of the land with a half-acre pond. If that works, you can do it. And then maybe I want my house somewhere about mid-tier on the slope, and I want the big pond off away from my house a little bit, not you know, or maybe right up against it, whatever. But what would be ideal is if I could put up even a little one twentieth of an acre, you know, a couple hundred square yard pond at the highest portion in my land. I could then do irrigation coming back down. I could take a pump. I can put that in the big pond in the dry time of the year. I can pump the water up to the little pond. I can overflow the little pond into maybe a system of swales, and I can move fertility through the land. These are, I mean, it's a very, very complex question you're asking because if I were consulting with you, I'd need to know, well, what do you want? What do you want to grow? You know, how much work do you want to do? How much work do you not want to do? What's your timeline? 
You know, how long are you willing to wait for the system to become uh, a full producing system? Do you need quick production next year from annuals? Are you willing to wait a couple, three, four seasons to get into more heavy perennial production, even in the closer zones? But these are some things that I would be thinking about. And by the way, when we get Lawton out here to Texas, this type of earthworking with a lower and upper dam, if I can find the right property, that's exactly what that will be on, the workshop that we'll do, along with what I want to do is kind of a zone one micro-earthworks, contour paths, garden paths, soaking paths, so that anybody that comes to that workshop, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but I want you guys to know what I'm planning, anybody that comes would get the big and the small scale. So that one day when you have your, your big piece of land or you have a friend that wants help on a big piece of land that you're going to be involved with, you can do that major earthwork stuff. But you can also go home to suburbia if that's where you live and use the same technology on a micro level and get the micro and macro view at the same time. Jeff thinks that's an awesome idea and we'll be able to bring everything together and have everything staged, ready to go. It, it'll be cool. But those are the types of things I would be thinking about. Southern facing exposure of the home, your rooms for sleeping and, and washing and, and, and laundry in the backside, on the north side, your main daylight living areas out front. House located slightly elevated from your zone one garden so that we can use the roof runoff. Uh, if we want to go bigger scale, I want to have my larger dam down low, my smaller dam up high, some type of connecting system that allows the land to fertigate uh, with, the, with the fertility of the pond water throughout. But again, this is something that I really can't answer um, without going a little deeper. Now, one thing I might do, and I've got this new swivel thing for my iPhone, and maybe next week I'll cut some videos for you guys on a whiteboard, and I'll take some and do some sample designs of what I could do on three or four different property sizes, just some ideas about how they could be connected. The, the problem with that is you'll never see another piece of land exactly the same. It's actually better if I have a piece of land, a plot to work with. So if any of you guys have some plots you'd like me to use for this, uh, specifically with, you know, I need to know which way is north on the Dadgon plot and topographic lines and any existing structures, whether they're natural or uh, man-made. And what I mean by that, not even natural necessarily, but ponds, chicken houses, houses, anything on there that's like been added or I would need to know about. Uh, send them over to me and maybe we'll get some stuff like that done. It might be fun. Uh, let's take another question. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here, responding to the gentleman who called in regarding the neck sheath. Uh, something he can do if he's making a custom sheath, uh, standard leather one, is uh, take some of those old neodymium magnets out of the, a dead hard drive and put those in the sheet. Uh, essentially, it gives you a magnetic resistance, but there's nothing to catch on it, no locking mechanism. So you can basically pull it out pretty easy, um, but you get pretty good retention with all that magnetic force. In fact, you can hang the knife upside down, so you can just grab and pull down and out, and the magnets will retain the blade in the sheathing. Uh, just a little tip, uh, also works for modifying uh, pocket holsters for firearms. I inserted a small neodymium magnet into the DeSantis Nemesis ho pocket holster that I carry my LCP in, and it's prevented the firearm from falling out of the holster during activity. Uh, those magnets are wonderful, and there's probably a thousand other ideas you can do with them, so never throw out an old hard drive without taking those magnets out first. 
Well, I like the idea of adding magnetic retention to any type of retention device that's holding anything metallic, whether it be a neck knife or um, a sidearm or anything, as long as it doesn't impede draw, and this just doesn't sound like it would. So, great idea. Never really thought about harvesting those maggots out. Maggots? Harvesting. I'm back into permaculture. We're harvesting maggots to feed our fish. No, harvesting magnets from uh, old hard drives. And I know there's actually a lot of them probably floating around out there, and uh, there's a lot of times where people just get an old computer tower and they want to get rid of it. So there's probably a lot of that that could be done, and it sounds like a good idea. Also, we have quite a few people that are holster manufacturers and people that do uh, manufacturing of other devices with uh, that use Kydex to, to build various things, like for holding knives and for holding other accessories and all. And embedding magnet magnets into kydex might improve retention now i haven't had a lot of problems with retention with with kydex like i said on the episode this guy's mentioning um my neck knife that was made by patrick at mt knives i carry it all the time it's a kydex sheath it's just formed around the knife if it gets a little bit loose feeling i heat it up with a hair dryer and i, I mold it a little bit with my fingers and it's good to go for another you know four or five months before i even have to think about worrying about it again So I haven't had a lot of problems. Now, as far as carrying the neck knife with the handle down, uh, that's exactly how I carry my neck knife all the time anyway. Um, if you're out, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the wilderness and you're doing, you know, bushcrafting and stuff like that, and you're wearing your knife outside of your shirt and, uh, and what have you, then having it, you know, top up, so to speak, so you have to reach in and pull it out, I, I guess it's not that big a deal. It's not as convenient. It's not as easy to draw. But like day-to-day -day use, being able to just reach inside your shirt either from above or below and yank that knife, um, it, it's very convenient. And that's the way that I want to carry, if at all possible. As long as I can do so safely, um, the knife Patrick made me, I feel completely safe carrying it that way. Again, the one that I mentioned that I originally got from Cold Steel was a great little knife. But it didn't retain well, and I ended up with it sitting on my lap while driving my car. That could have been a, a major catastrophic event. So a magnet is a safety. Something you guys out there doing Kydex manufacturing might want to think about. A magnet is a secondary redundancy because we're big on redundancy here. So when there's something like a sharp edge or point involved... So create as much redundancy as we can. My question is, if you don't, you know, if you're going to do it on a mass production level, you need a lot of magnets. Those magnets, how expensive are they? I have no idea. I've never checked. And you know, can you find that many used hard drives to uh, to uh, scavenge them out of? Anyway, great tip, especially for kind of the DIY uh, types that are out there. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Troy in Denton, Texas. I heard a quote the other day. I think it was Mark Twain saying that the The people in control are either scoundrels or imbeciles, and of the two, I'm not sure which scares me more. I'm not sure if that's the exact quote. But anyway, thinking about the Federal Reserve and, and our government and government spending, etc., I was wondering, what do you think? Do you think uh, they're scoundrels or imbeciles? or, or uh, you know, What are your thoughts? First, it's Jack. Thanks. Bye. Um, I, I'm not familiar with the quote. I couldn't find anything on it from Twain. I, I do know that he said when you, you bring up scoundrels that patriotism is the last refuge of scoundrels, which has its own connotations. And maybe I'll do like a famous quote interpretation day uh, as a future episode. That would be a good one to talk about, but I'll let it go today because you're asking a different question. So what I think you might be talking about, and it makes the same point anyway, is a quote that's often misattributed to Mark Twain. 
and that is never attribute to malice that which can be explained through incompetence and different versions of that. And the reality is we don't really know where that quote came from. It's officially an anonymous quote, and there's many variations, and many people have said different variations thereof. And we don't know what, so don't somebody email me and go, it's actually technically this way. We don't know what the right way to put the quote together really is because so many versions of it have come out over time. And that's kind of the point you're making. So are these guys, as I call them, a bunch of ass clown idiots that are completely freaking incompetent Or do they know precisely what they're doing? And are they saying, you know, in the words of Hamlet, the play is the thing, right? From Shakespeare, the play is the thing, and playing the fool like Hamlet did. Which one is it? And the answer, like many things, is this great blob of overlap that depends on how we look at it. Now, this is what I believe. There are a group of people that do know precisely what they're doing. Most of them are not elected officials. Many of them are in bureaucracy-level uh, positions, like the United States Department of Agriculture, and they work for Monsanto, and then they work for the USDA, and then they work for Monsanto, and then they work for the USDA, and then they go work for Conagra, and then they go to the USDA, and they go back to Monsanto, and like, you got that. Okay, so that guy, he's a lot more educated than the average ass-clown elected official, and he knows what he's doing to a degree. At the very top level, the financiers, the bankers, The, the, the megacorps, and I mean the megacorps, and the people that own the megacorps, you don't even know their names. Those people are the chess players. And then you have all of these bureaucrats and mid-level uh, uh, corporate tiers and your politicians at various levels that are all different chess pieces. And just like chess pieces, they have different levels of competence. Many of them are pawns. They are clueless. They have no idea what the hell they're doing or what's being done with them. They're what you would call useful idiots. And a lot of our congressmen and a lot of our state officials and all are being used this way. They genuinely believe in what they're doing. Okay? And the closer we get to a local official, uh, the, the, the more they're doing it on their own. And the further we get away from a local official, we move into the county, the state, the federal level, the more they're having their strings pulled. When you get to the federal level, 90 to 95% of those people are having their strings pulled in everything that they do, whether they know it or not. So are they idiots or are they evil? And the reality is if I'm the puppeteer, depending on what I'm doing with the puppet, I need a balance. I can't have a complete idiot that's so stupid that their stupidity is obvious and really use them to get things done unless I want things done because of stupidity. So I can take somebody like Maxine Waters, just a dumbass, and I can use her stupidity to, to make one side feel that the other side is completely out of touch. And I can take dumbasses on the other side of the aisle and do the same thing. But the people that actually get things done for me in the halls of Congress, the people that eventually become lobbyists, they need to be a little bit smarter than that. So that, that I, But they, they can't be too smart. They can't actually be like a Ron Paul and figure it all out because then they turn on, on both sides instead of one. No, no, no. I need a person just smart enough to be articulate. I need a person just smart enough to be convinced that their side is right. I need a person just smart enough to see all the dangers of the other side. And I need those types of people on both sides. And then I need to fund both sides so that I have control in both sides and I can get the same net result out. So your question isn't really are they all incompetent or malicious. We have, as they become more and more competent, the level that you can attribute to malice increases. 
The people that truly are operating with malice are the people you never see, the names you never hear, and they're the ones that are behind all the money, and they're not even the George Soroses. There's, that's one person they let you see, and yeah, that guy's an evil jackass, and he's behind a lot of this crap. But don't think it's like, oh, if we just got rid of him, because that's the play is the thing again. Right? It's the bug, it's the biggest boogeyman out there. You know, and there's so many people that are worse and doing more. You'll never know who they are because the system is set up and designed to keep you separated from each other. And here's the thing, it doesn't matter. What matters is how do we fix it? The only way that we fix it is for you and your neighbor who, who go, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, you suck, no, you suck, to shut the hell up long enough to realize that on 80 and 90% of the things that you're talking about, you're in complete agreement, and those jackasses are the ones dividing you. And I'm going to tell you something that you don't want to hear today. Most of you don't want to hear anyway. As long as you don't, as long as you prevent that from happening, they're in control, and no matter who you vote for, nothing's going to change. And if you think Mitt Romney's going to make the country better, you're delusional. Okay? And if you think most of these congressmen that we put in last election are going to make the country better, you're delusional. If the people that were there before them were making it better until people didn't give them enough time, you're delusional. If you think any of it's going to change, you're delusional. Because the system is set up exactly the way that I've described for you. Some people call it the new world order. Some people call that a conspiracy theory. I just call it reality. This is the way things are. The people with the most money and the most power have the greatest vested interest in remaining in power, and the greatest leverage they have is money. So they can take any system and leverage money as long as you take the individual where the sovereignty is supposed to lie at the bottom and convince them to give enough of their sovereignty away so that the government can protect them. you got to create somebody for them to protect themselves from so you convince them that their neighbor neighbor's the one that wants to take away their guns, or their neighbor's the one that wants to kill all the children, or the neighbor is the one that wants the poor people to suffer, or the neighbor is the one that wants to destroy the planet, when these assholes at the top are the ones that don't give a damn about your children, don't give a damn what they do to the planet, they don't give a damn about any of this stuff. All they care about is control and money. So it's not malice versus its incompetence. It's the further you go up, the less you can attribute to incompetence and the more that you must attribute to malice. And you can't have them be completely stupid except a few useful total idiots, right? You use those to polarize the other side. And you spend all the money you have to to keep a complete idiot in power just so the other side goes, oh my God, look what will happen if they take over. That imbecile will be in charge. That imbecile will never be in charge. That imbecile exists to be an imbecile. If that imbecile gets too much power, the people that are really in power will pull the rug out from under the imbecile and put a new imbecile in place. It's all puppeteering. It's all puppeteering. And you can't break the strings by backing a different puppet. You have to break the strings by doing the one thing they don't want you to do. Talking to each other. Believing in each other, seeking your solutions from each other, and stop asking them to fix the problems they created. Like I said, more political than I like to be, but if you're going to ask the question, you're going to get an honest answer from me. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, several shows ago, uh, I heard you make a comment saying uh, that you would not drink Coors Light. Um, or that you didn't drink that, that it was crap or something. And I'm just curious, what do you drink? I, I mean, I, 
I know quite a bit about Jack, you know, Spirico from the shows and so forth. I've been listening for a while, but on a personal side, you know, I mean, what do you prefer to, you know, sit back and drink a cold one with your buddies with, you know? I mean, what do you prefer, Jack? That's not really much of a survival podcast question, but maybe a personal question. Uh, I just kind of like to know a little bit more about Jack. Uh, thanks a lot, man. Bye. You know, when I was screening that call, I almost threw it out. I actually had to go to the deleted items file and pull it back in because I thought that's not really a show topic. But when I, I realized, and this is what happens all the time, you guys send me these questions like in the perfect order for them to compliment each other. After a heavy-ass subject like we just covered, this might be a, a good little lighthearted moment and, and a chance for me to apologize for any Coors Light drinkers that I may have offended in the past or Miller Light drinkers or what have you. And, and it just give you a little bit of personal insight in me. I like to drink beer. There's no secret to that. There's plenty of pictures out there with me with a cold one in my hand. I've done a few videos with the beer. I, I really don't drink that much beer. I just do that once in a while because I can. And it just feels good to be able to go, I'm working. And even though I'm working and making a video, here's a beer. And no one can do anything about it because, you know, 20 years in corporate America, you You can't do stuff like that. You can't have freedom. My God, the whole world might fall apart. For you. So that's, that's why you might see that once in a while. Here's the deal. Um, like many people out there, I began drinking beer before the law said it was allowed. Yes, I was an underage drinker. Like, oh, 90% of the teenagers in Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, that spent our weekend evenings going to beer parties. And we drank mostly a beer called Yingling because it was the local stuff. We called it Pottsville Piss Water, and uh, we kind of meant that in a weird way. Kind of the way that you pick on the weakest guy on the football team. You got, you're allowed to do it, but nobody else that's not part of the team better do it. Um, it was uh, it was a love-hate relationship with Yingling, and Yingling came out with a lot of really great beers after that. But it was pretty much an American standard beer, like a, a Miller or a Michelob or something like that, but a little bit better, just a little bit because it was all malt. It didn't use corn sugar or anything like that to lighten the body and boost the alcohol. But I drank my fair share of complete crap beer because when you're you know, a teenager, you're broke, and I drank beers like Milwaukee's Best and Budweiser and Bud Light and Miller Light and all that other stuff. When I went in the Army and I started going to the NCO club, I started drinking a beer called Miller Genuine Draft. And I thought that had more flavor than most beers that were available. And I couldn't get my beloved Yingling down there. So that was kind of the beer that I drank through my military years. So I drank the swill, as I call it now, for a long time. And it's not really bad beer. And, and it's not that I won't drink it. It's that if I have my choice, there's better quality, more interesting beers to drink. About the time I came to Texas, I started to discover the microbrew world, which was just taking off in the early 90s. And I discovered beers that had flavor and nuances and taste. And it's not, a, I only, it's like the, the beer stomach goes, oh, I drink dark beers. Well, you're dumb because there's plenty of light beers with lots of complexity and flavor and taste. IPAs have lots, India Pale Ales have lots of complexity due to a lot of hop character in them. And they're generally all malt, beer, all malt beers, but they're lighter colored. So they're yellow beer and so they're yellow beer. So Is a, is a beer drinker, I like complexity. I'm not going to sit down and slam a freaking case of beer and get drunk. That's not the, the goal of a beer for me. A beer for me is a, a, almost a meditative thing unless I'm working and having one because I'm sweating. And then a lawnmower beer like, you know, a light American standard is fine, you know. Um, but when you're, when you're sitting back out on the porch at the end of the day and you're going to have a beer or three, And you're going to contemplate things, and you're going to unplug, and you're going to unwind. 
Why drink something that has almost a watery flavor to it? Why not drink something that you can actually think about where it came from? Think about how it was grown. Think about the fact, well, there must be, yeah, there's this toasty nuttiness with a residual sweetness here. There must be some caramel malt or gambrinus honey malt in this, in this, this brewer's mix. And that, that hop flavor is very citrusy. It's probably Cascade. And, and then think about that. Then look the guy's beer up online, see if they publish any information about it, or read the bottle after you drink it and see where you write. This is, this stuff's interesting to me the way that a fine wine is interesting to a wine connoisseur. A wine connoisseur that can actually tell you not only did this wine come from this vineyard, here's the year, and here's which facing slope the, the, the grape was grown on. I, I have no interest in getting that complex with it, but I, I like that kind of thinking so that's what it was now to be fair to somebody that likes Coors Light and Bud Light drink what you like I don't care I'm not going to put you down for it I'm not really a beer snob if you're kind of in that work zone where you you know it's okay to have a beer or two and you're not going to like kill yourself because you're not working with a chainsaw or something like that and you're outside and you're sweating maybe you're cutting the grass and you're taking a break in between and you decide in addition to the water that you better be drinking in the summer I'm going to have a beer you know a Coors Light kind of hits the spot right there because it's a lot more like water than beer Now, to be really fair, I get questions from people, how do I brew Coors Light at homebrew? And the question is, why would you? It will cost you more than going out and buy it. It's cheap beer, go out and buy it. But, to be fair, it's a lager. That means it's fermented at colder temperatures for a longer period of time. It doesn't have a lot of hop character. It doesn't have a lot of grain character to it. It's very, very neutral in a lot of ways. And that actually makes it as a home brewer, if you can actually brew... A clone of Budweiser and put it next to a Budweiser and have a Budweiser drinker maybe go, there's a little difference here, but they're both very, very good and very much what I would expect. You're a master home brewer. It is the hardest beer style to brew at home. And the reason it's the hardest, there's nothing to cover up your mistakes. If I make an English brown, I've got all that malt and these different hop strains and the fruity, estery, ale yeast, and I've got all, so there could be a little flaw in there. And it, it, unless you really look for it, you don't even see it. But if you're trying to brew a Budweiser clone and you have the slightest flaw with your sanitation or a little bit too much hops or the temperature got a little bit too high when you were fermenting it or you went a little bit heavy on one of the malt varieties or you, if you did a full mash, you, it comes through like crazy the same way that if you had a glass of water and I added a pinch of salt to it and mixed it up or if you had a Coca-Cola and I added a pinch of salt to it and mixed it up, you probably wouldn't even notice it. I'm talking a little tiny pinch. You probably wouldn't even notice it in the Coke, but it would stick out big time in the water. So these lighter beers are actually more complex to brew and more difficult to brew, and that's why they're a relatively modern invention, and ales are a much older form of beer, and it's not like this isn't beer, it's lager. No, it's all beer. And there's two types of yeast, lager and ale. You're getting a little mini brewing lesson today. Ale yeast ferment at warmer temperatures on the top. Lager yeast ferment on the bottom. And now I'm going to ruin it for all the Budweiser drinkers out there. Beechwood aged. All right, remember that one? That's the It's Beechwood aged. You're so proud of that. So, no, that's just marketing. Here's how that works. The, the lager yeast used to ferment Budweiser is a very, very clean fermenting, very gentle yeast. And it has a tendency at the low temperatures to go dormant very, very quickly. 
So it's going to go dormant. And that means it'll stop doing its job and it won't complete the fermentation. This is another reason it's hard as a home brewer. You got to keep it going. Well, you don't want to keep stirring it up. That's a bad thing. But what you want is as much beer, the fermenting beer, were in touch with the yeast as possible to keep it going as long as possible. So some genius at Budweiser, and the guy's a genius to think of this, put these baffles in. So inside the tank, instead of just a big round tank and all the yeast settles to the bottom of the Budweiser tank, there's all these little shelves, think of them, of beechwood all throughout the tank. And when the yeast settles, it settles at all these different levels and layers, kind of like a permaculture system inside the Budweiser tank. And that keeps the yeast in contact with the beer for a longer period of time and gets a good, clean, full fermentation with no esters. No, that's just marketing. No, that's how it really works. The marketing was, some guy in marketing went, beach wood aged. And the brewer, the master brewer that came up with this probably said, but no, that's, see, beach wood has no flavor. It does nothing. It's completely new. We picked it so it wouldn't mess up the beer. And the marketing guy goes, shut up. Beach wood aged. And that's where it came from. So now you have a little bit of impact, on int 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 uh, little input on from me. You get to hear a little bit about beer. Hopefully everybody wants to go have their favorite beer at the end of the day today. If you're not a beer drinker, maybe a glass of wine. If you don't drink adult beverages, maybe you want to have a nice glass of tea. But maybe contemplate what you're drinking a little bit today. And even those of you that drink the Coors Light and the Bud Light and the Miller Light, instead of slamming that beer, drink it slowly. Let the temperature change as you drink. And let, you know, drink start out with the ice cold and take your time with that first one and experience the changes and the flavors and think about where it came from and think about the barley and the hops and the yeast and the method it was used to make it. And no matter what you're drinking, whether it's an adult beverage or an everybody beverage, might get a little bit more out of the experience. We can do the same things with our food. Anyway, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Charles. I haven't listened to your Sepp Holzer Review podcast yet, but it got me thinking about some permaculture-type questions. I've got a property that has a steep bank on it, and there is a road, or it's more like a trail, that is less steep than the bank that leads down to that lower ground down below. And it drops about 10 feet and 100 feet. So it's a 10% slope. And on both sides of the crown of the trail are basically roadside ditches. And as you can imagine, at 10% slope, those ditches are eroding quite a bit. And I've actually designed erosion protection for something like this for municipalities or even uh, commercial clients. But in that case, we would have the money to do a very robust concrete design using Uh, concrete riprap or gabion baskets or something very high-tech and expensive. Bioengineered or biological controls generally that would not work on a slope this steep, but I'd like to try something because I don't have the money to spend on something that's more of an engineer-type design. So I wonder if you had any ideas. Maybe you could piggyback off some of the side slope stabilization measures from steep culture beds. So let me know if you have any thoughts there. Thanks, Jack. Now, the problem that you're having is that you're doing something that is completely the opposite of what a, a permaculture solution would be. You're getting rid of the water as fast as possible. When you move water fast, it creates erosion. And the only way to counter the erosion, like you said, is to encase it in concrete so you have something so strong that it can hold off the erosive power of the water 
for at least a time, for a, a long period of time. I mean, to be fair, if we went in there and put some concrete culverts in, we could move that water all the way down somewhere, and as long as it's going through that concrete culvert, it's not going to harm anything, and it'll take life a lifetime to, to probably wear that culvert out, maybe several lifetimes. But all we've done now is gotten rid of the water, it's gone somewhere else, and it's going to do something wherever it goes. Somewhere, someplace, at some time, it's going to cause a problem. And we've dried out our landscape. So, we have to do the thing that would be the hardest for the civil engineering mind that's always been told the water is bad to do, and that is we have to hold the water and slow the water and put the water into the ground versus let the water go flying down the hill. So what we want to do is we want to swale that hill. And even on a tendery pitch, we can go in there and swale it. The things we have to do is, one, we need big swales. We need to be able to hold that capacity and give it time to get in. We need to not compact the ground. In fact, it, and, and I, I can't tell you this is the solution because I don't know how big your hill is, how much area you have to work with, how much surface area you have to work with. Is it, you know, can you go in there and put a freaking half kilometer long swell system in? Uh, you know, which each swell being that long, or is this only like a hundred feet, you know, or less? Is it a 50 foot of slope you're working with? And you got, but I mean, if it was a big property, I'd go in there and I'd put, you know, Two meter wide, one meter deep swales with one meter high banks down on the, on the other side of them. And level sills about, you know, 10 centimeters lower than the rest of the swale lip, at least a meter long, compacted, and I'd let the water flow from one swale to the next to the next all the way down. And I might even go in there with a bulldozer and use the ripper And I might rip the land open in the bottom of the swales if it's that compacted or in between the swales and get the water into the land. No, the whole thing won't come tumbling down. Yes, you should get professional help with this, a, a, a good permaculture designer to help you to make sure you don't bring the side of the hill down. But in general, when we swale, we stop all of that problem. And then we end up creating a sponge in the land. Now, this is the important part immediately at the completion of those swales, they need to be planted. You need drier plantings on the upside, more wet plantings on the downside. You need trees, fast-growing pioneers, long-term subcanopy and canopy trees at the same time, lots of herbaceous plants, lots of rehabilitative herbaceous plants like legumes to put nitrogen back into that soil, and you want to st stabilize that property as fast as you possibly can. I mean, you literally want, as the one swale's cut and the excavator's going downgrade to build the next one, the plantings to be going in. As soon as it's done, it's got to be planted. And we got to plant the heck out of it. If we do that, we can fix 90% or better of the situations like you're talking about. There is no way to make water go narrow and fast and high capacity and not do damage other than to lock it into something that channels it in, in, in an area where it, 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 it's exceeded its capacity to erode. Whether it's a concrete pipe or it's a wide enough stream bed that eventually the stream bed has exceeded the water's maximum capacity and then it just stays there. And it's either wet all year or it's dry part of the year. But those are, that, I mean, it's the only way that it works. If you want water to not erode, it has to be shallow, wide, and slow. Narrow, fast, and deep erosion. Wide, slow, shallow, no erosion. It's that simple. 
we could put in terraces. It's a little bit riskier. The 10 degree slope, probably not so much. But uh, uh, Jeff Lawton would probably tell you at 10 degrees, you could put something other there than trees, but it's probably tree country. It probably makes sense to grow a forest up there. A swale-based forest system will stop but cold the erosion unless you have a huge catchment pouring into a small space and you don't have enough space to displace the water. So if you have a thousand acres of catchment upgrade and you're dealing with you know uh, a quarter of an acre, then it's going to be very hard with just swales for you to diffuse that catchment. But you could still discharge your swales eventually into your eroded gully on both sides. And if you did it this way, if you brought the top swale to the secondary, to the tertiary, to the fourth, however many steps down you can go, and you only discharge it at the bottom, then even where it's discharging, you could hard pack and maybe go in there and concrete the sill so you have a very stable sill And then the water has been slowed down all the way, and now it's discharging lower down the gulch, and then at least your erosion is somewhat mitigated. But I'd have to actually see it. I'd probably have to be on site, and I'd probably bring in assistance if it was more complex than it sounds. Uh, but those are some basic thoughts on that. But for, I think the problem is that most people, when they start thinking about swales, They understand these dishes on contours. They understand holding the water up there. They just see this potential for catastrophic results if it's not done right. And the reality is when swales break, it's not that big a deal because most of the water is still held. It's actually really easy to repair. Now, if a dam breaks, we've got a catastrophe. If a big dam breaks, we can wipe out neighborhoods or towns, right? But if a swale breaks, we're, we're not even back to where we were before we put the swale in. We didn't make it worse. It's the same, but less. Just some thoughts. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Matt from Maryland. Um, I run a little um, aquaponics thing in my garage, and I just had the craziest thing happen. So uh, I feed my uh, tilapia excess lettuce from my garden, and it's a nice little snack for them. It stops the lettuce from going to waste. It's all great. So this time I tried feeding them a little bit of store-bought lettuce that we had uh, that just gotten a little bit old, wasn't tasting as good. So... I said that to them, and uh, the like only one of the fish was actually eating them, and I thought that was kind of weird. Uh, and I come home from work today, and he's dead. So store-bought lettuce killed one of my tilapia. Uh, that's anyway. I, I guess that just says something about what's in store-bought food. So um, anyway, thanks for you. Okay, I don't want to read too terribly much into that because I know for a fact that many other people have fed store-bought lettuce, including lettuce that wasn't organic, to fish and fowl and everything else and not had the same results. It clearly seems like there was something wrong with this lettuce. And I'll, I'll tell you what is more disturbing to me than one fish dying. People that run aquaponic system know that a fish dies often. It happens. Anybody that's kept an aquarium knows you can have an aquarium perfectly balanced. Everything's clear. Everything looks good. The whole thing goes south, and like most or all of your fish die. But on other occasions, nothing really seems to go wrong, and you come in, there's a floater. So it could be coincidence. The thing that gives this one more concern for me is the refusal of all the other fish to eat it. This tells us there was something not quite right there. 
And my concern is, what the hell was on this stuff? And I'm sure this guy, when he was using his lettuce, probably washed his lettuce and all. Why would it come off? I think the bigger concern is coatings that are used to keep it looking fresh longer. I don't know what they were. If anybody has any 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 actual knowledge of what would be used on store-bought lettuce that could cause this to happen, please write in and let me know. Don't write me conspiracy things. Don't tell me it's Agenda 21. Don't waste my or the audience's time with fourth-hand information. But if you actually know what could cause something like this, if there's any credence to it, if you actually know of a spray or a coating that's used that you can cite by name and example and I can verify, please let me know because I would like to know. This, this is one of these things that could be not that big a deal or it could be a huge deal. There could have been something naturally wrong with the lettuce. It could have, you said it started to go bad. Maybe it was getting some kind of a fungus that's really toxic to tilapia and the innate intelligence of the fish said not to eat it had nothing to do with the store. It could be a spray coating designed to keep it looking healthier longer that caused this to happen. The fact the other fish wouldn't eat it tells you that maybe in some instances at least all but one of the fish might be smarter than we are. Thanks for sharing that. I would like more information on it. I do have one more call before we wrap up this Friday. Hey, Jack. This is Quentin in Cincinnati, Country City Joe on the forum. Uh, I've got a question for you. I have gasoline stored in my truck box, like you have mentioned. I think it's a good idea. I also have my uh, get-home bag back in that truck box. The other day I pulled out a Snickers bar that I had in my bag and tried it, and it tasted like gasoline. So I remember talking or hearing you talk with, uh, or maybe it was just old was talking about storing gas in, in general, so that the gas could leak out through the red plastic gas cans, and I was wondering if that's, I'm thinking that's what happened. Uh, is there any way you would recommend to store food so that it doesn't have gas fumes starting to, you know, so your food doesn't taste like gasoline? Um, if you could talk about that for a second, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Okay, the big thing I want to start out with, when you're storing gas in your vehicles, in any capacity, whether it's in a lockbox strapped down in the back of your truck, get away from the plastic Walmart gas cans. Get metal, NATO, or USGI, or good quality reproductions thereof cans, and the right nozzles to go with them so that they can be dumped into your vehicle. That way, the only place where you could have any failure with venting of fumes or spilling of fuel is going to be if there's an actual hole in it, which means you've got a broken one, get rid of it, or the seal around the, the, the closure. Those plastic gas cans can and do give off gas fumes. So I don't think I've been clear enough about this. Vehicle transportation of your gas, other than if you're, if you're storing them in a shed and you're doing like the monthly rotation, one can every month or something like that, or two cans every month, they're going to do an okay job and they're, they're more affordable and, and they're fine for that. And transporting them from the gas station to home, not that big a deal. But long term, get the metal airtight cans or you're going to have this smell problem in your vehicle and your tools everywhere. You don't want it. And it's not good for the fuel either. So start off, let's start off with that. Now, if you're putting your bug out bag into a sealed toolbox that has your gas can, then even with a metal can, you do have some potential for this. So one of the things we can do, not to totally prevent, but mitigate this a lot, get yourself two heavy grade contractor garbage bags, 
Put it in there, seal it up, put it in there again. That will probably help a lot. That's a good idea anyway. If you're storing any kind of solvents or oils or anything like that, it will help because you never know what one of those things might rupture or break or what have you. A better solution is get a good uh, bolt-down uh, rack with a strap and keep the fuel in the back of the truck outside of the toolbox. And that'll that'll really eliminate the problems. Yes, somebody could steal your fuel. Yes, somebody could steal your vehicle, though, right? So the big one, though, get the U.S. government-issued military or NATO or good-quality reproduction metal cans for your fuel storage. In general, would be a good idea, but definitely any place like that or if you're doing really long-term storage, they're a much better tool For the job, so to speak. I know they're heavier. I know they cost more. But they work better, and you won't end up with a gasoline-tasting Snickers bar, which just doesn't sound good to me at all. It doesn't sound like the thing that, you know, the commercial where you're acting like Betty White or you're acting like a drama queen and the guy has a Snickers bar, he's acting like Joe Pesci and it fixes it. Doesn't sound like you'll have the same effect if your Snickers bar or your MRE or whatever tastes like gasoline. Metal cans, good seals, check your seals often, and if at all possible, store the can outside of a secondary container that will actually hold in any fumes that do off fume for you. Uh, and the, the, the big thing is that will result in more stable long-term fuel storage for you anyway. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a bed. Nobody up there cares, they're living 